Welcome to the first EVJ podcast of 2016. I'm your host, Rihanna Morgan. We have an orthopaedic theme for this edition, and we'll be discussing epiduroscopy of the vertebral canal with Dr. Timo Pranger, and movement asymmetry in polo horses with Dr. Tilo Fau. Dr. Timo Pranger is a clinical assistant professor of equine surgery at North Carolina State University and specialises in soft tissue surgery. The paper we're discussing has recently been published in the January edition of EVJ and is titled Epiduroscopy of the Lumbosacral Vertebral Canal in the Horse, Technique and Endoscopic Anatomy. So Timo, as we know, back pain is a common cause of poor performance in equine athletes and can be difficult to diagnose and treat due to the size of the animal we're working with. So bearing this in mind, could you briefly describe the outline of your study and comment on why you're investigating the use of epiduroscopy in the horse? Yeah, just just as you mentioned, um, the size of the horse limits um, the use of certain diagnostic modalities that are called the gold standard in people, which would be the CT or the MRI when it comes to chronic um, low back pain. And um, even in humans, they have a hard time diagnosing the actual cause of pain using these advanced imaging um, tools. So in in humans, they actually use epiduroscopy in those very complicated cases. And based on their experience, we thought, why not use this tool, a minimally invasive diagnostic tool that actually can eventually be used to treat conditions uh, in horses where the size completely eliminates the op- the option of an MRI, for example, of the caudal bag. So um, in this particular study, we um, wanted to first answer the question, can we actually get an endoscope into the caudal epidural space in horses? We can do it in the neck. We have shown that before, but we weren't quite sure if it's even possible in the um, lumbosacral area where that pain would be uh, located. And so um, we tried a... Uh, uh, the approach, it developed the approach in cadavers, um, identified the uh, endoscope that we could use, and then um, put the scope in there and, and, and wanted to see what we, can, what we can visualize. Can we actually see the anatomical structures that might be interesting um, in horses with caudal um, back pain or um, pain up there that causes lameness, for example? I guess that was the basic goal. So what kind of conditions um, are being diagnosed in humans using epiduroscopy? In humans, we obviously have a a whole different um, disease complex uh, that we don't deal with in horses, which is um, disc herniation. And um, commonly after surgery for herniation, uh, for disc herniation uh, or prolapsed disc, they deal with a lot of scar tissue inflammation in that region that then subsequently causes something that is called uh, um, radiculopathies, lumbosacral um, radiculopathies. So inflammation of the nerve root that originates um, from the spinal cord. And so they go in there and um, examine the space, and that is the most common um, causes post-surgical examination of the epidural space to identify an inflamed nerve root. Um, but also, they use it to diagnose tumors, abnormal vasculature, um, cysts have been diagnosed and treated that way. So there's a variety of things, but 
why it is interesting for us is we don't have the back surgery in horses that can cause the inflammation, but we have the immediate proximity of those little facet joints um, that we have between um, each ver- two vertebra, adjoining vertebra, and those joints are um, immediately next to the intervertebral foramen through which the spinal nerve has to go. So. It doesn't have to be the back surgery that causes the inflammation. It can be a severely inflamed osteoarthritic joint that might have the same effect on the nerve root. And so um, they see that in people as well. And that's, I guess, where I finally made that connection. Say, like, well, that can do it in people. It might do it in horses as well. And we would have no way of seeing um, the consequences a severely arthritic joint would have on the um, adjoining nerve. So to help us visualize the procedure, could you give us a quick overview of the anatomy within the vertebral canal and maybe outline the structures you'd be able to visualize with the endoscope? Yeah, that's that's a very good question because, to be honest, um, when, when I started or when we start with all this, the anatomy um, within the vertebral canal is nothing that you have to deal with as an equine mm-hmm. practitioner or a surgeon very often. So um, the, ba- the, the main thing is that we have um, three meninges surrounding the, the spinal cord in, in, in mammals in general and also in the horse, obviously. So there's the dura mater, the most outer, the, the outer, outer one, very firm um, uh, Mannings. Then we have the arachnoid matter, and then on the inside the pia matter. And the dura matter is basically a movable tube around the spinal cord that is sitting within the vertebral canal. And between the dura mater and um, the periosteal lining of the vertebrae, that's where the epidural space is. So in this space um, between the dura mater and the vertebra, basically, that's where the epidural space is located with mostly fat, connective tissue and fat in it. The, and it's very different from the subarachnoid space that is on the other side of the dura mater where we actually have the cerebrospinal fluid. So we do not go anywhere close to the actual spinal cord with an epidural endoscopy. And we have this really thick protective layer around the spinal cord, which makes this procedure um, a lot less dangerous than you might think when you hear, oh my God, they put the scope into the vertebral canal. We actually have the dura mater around that. And um, in addition to the epidural fat that I just mentioned and connective tissue, you have the spinal nerves that um, originate, as we all know, from the spinal cord and then have to leave the vertebral canal through the intervertebral foramen. And um, then obviously we have vasculature in there. And um, while it's mostly small vessels that run through the connective tissue and the fat, there's also the ventral internal vertebral venous plexus that um, is, as the name suggests, um, located ventrally in the vertebral canal. And that's that's quite a substantial, um, quite substantial vessels. But um, so to summarize it, it's it's nervous tissue, so the spinal nerves or the nerve roots, um, fat, connective tissue, and uh, vasculature. What you would see in there. Okay, so what was your study design, um, and can you talk us through the approach you used to access the epidural space, and what equipment you used to to do this? Yeah, um, that that is exactly the last part you mentioned there. The 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 equipment we used that was the the biggest first step we had to take is figure out what kind of endoscope is actually um, available to go into the epidural space back there. So. First of all, we thought, okay, if we want to go in caudal, we have to use a site that is fairly safe and um, where the epidural space is not too far away from the skin. Otherwise, it becomes 
very difficult to dissect down. And we wanted to make it minimally invasive like they do in people. So um, we decided to go for the side where the normal caudal epidural analgesia is performed. And that is between the, um, it, that's the first movable joint caudal to the sacrum. So when you basically move the tail up and down, where you feel that movable joint between two vertebrae, that's where we went in, um, just where you would put the needle in for an epidural block. And um, first of all, in the preliminary work, we took five cadavers, um, lumbosacral spinal cords and uh, uh, vertebrae, and measured the diameter of that opening um, at the level of those vert vertebrae that move to figure out how big is my vertebral canal, because that would determine how big of a scope I could put in there. So we did a few measurements, and um, to cut a long story short, um, eventually decided to go with an endoscope that has an external diameter of 3.8 millimeters. Um, and that would work based on our five horses only, only five dissections that we did for that. Um, that would allow us to get into the vertebral canal in horses um, that are at least five, 450 kilograms in weight. So um, we found a scope. It's actually a bronchoscope, a human bronchoscope with a working length of 60 centimeters, an external diameter of 3.8 millimeters that has a working channel and has a two-way angulation capability. So not four ways like we have in usually our upper airway endos um, endoscopes, but at least a two-way angulation capability. So we put a needle um, into the epidural space at the level um, of the first movable joint caudal to the sacrum. Um, we went parallel to the ground basically to follow the direction of the vertebral canal. And then we subsequently dilated that track with um, intravascular dilators up to 14 French, which is um, about four and a half millimeters. And then we um, inserted a sheath over those dilators removed the dilator and inserted the scope. So it was all minimally invasive. And um, that basically allowed us to access the epidural space as far caudal as possible. I guess that's the, that's the basic, basic summary of the approach that we did there. So a minimally invasive approach using increased size um, dilators to go into the epidural space, just caudal to the sacrum um, between the vertebra and the first caudal vertebra in most cases. Okay, and as you described, this was performed on suspended cadavers. So do you think, um, as your supplementary data suggests, the live horses will be standing with more of an upright angle? Do you think this will pose more of a challenge when you're trying to gain access in live horses? Yeah, that was a bit tricky, uh, exactly, because when you do the normal um, epidural injection, um, you you don't direct your needle parallel to the ground. But for us, the reason why we did that was um, we needed to get as much out of the opening as we possibly can. And we knew we would have to get the scope in there. And so if it would come in a steep angle, it would be harder for us to insert the endoscope into the epidural space. So we said, all right, we need to follow the direction of the vertebral canal. And yes, the, the suspended cadavers we're about as close as we could get to live horses in terms of a standing position. Um, but yes, I initially thought it would be, um, we would have to make quite an adjustment in standing horses. But since then, we have performed the procedure in standing horses. And actually, it works basically if you keep your needle horizontal to the floor, um, it works just as good 
in uh, in standing live horses than it worked in the cadaver. So there was less of an adjustment than I thought we would have to make. Were you able to visualize all the desired structures within the canal? And did you find there were any limitations to movement or cranial advancement of the endoscope? Yeah, that's a really good question. There were limitations to movement caudally because the seriously, the vertebral canal is so narrow there that when you enter your scope, that opening um, to enter the epidural space is just about big enough for the endoscope. And that's the same for the next few centimeters. So there is not much movement uh, possible at all. But once you get in further cranially, especially when you get into the lumbar epidural space, there's quite a bit of space available actually to move your endoscope around the entire um, dura mater. Um, you can do a 360 degree exploration. And uh, we were able to see all the desired structures, which was the corda equina, um, the uh, spinal nerve roots. They are enclosed in a dural sheath. So all you see is like one nerve root on the left and one on the right. Um, you cannot differentiate between dorsal and ventral, but. Um, that's just the nature of the anatomy back there. And then the epidural fat and the vasculature. In terms of limitations, the only thing that limited us was the length of the endoscope. And um, that was just the endoscope we had available. There are longer ones with the same diameter or even thinner ones. I just didn't have them um, available for the study. But I think you could go way further cranial than we did um, if you had a better or longer endoscope. So post-mortem examinations were carried out after the procedure. Uh, did this pick up any significant pathology due to the epiduroscopy? No, we didn't see any damage there. And uh, as I said earlier, the dura mater really protects um, the nervous structures um, in the epidural space very well. The, the limitation, obviously, is that these animals were dead. If I caused damage to any vessels there, um, it wouldn't show... Uh, would not have shown to the same degree that it would have in a living animal. So, but uh, we could not see any gross damage to any of the um, nerves, neither in the corda equina nor um, the spinal nerves or spinal nerve roots emerging from the spinal cord. What risk factors do you foresee when using this procedure on a live horse? Yeah, exactly as I said, uh, um, I think the main concern. Um, would be the potential damage to vessels. Mm. And um, also, when you do your dissection or when you go into the epidural space, you have about eight centimeters, I would say, of overlaying soft tissues, fat and muscles, before you actually get into the epidural space. And if you damage a vessel there, I think the, the bleeding um, coming from that could actually enter the epidural space. So even if you don't hit a vessel in the epidural space, there could be some blood getting into the epidural space from your approach side. And um, I honestly, yes, I think that is a, that is something I would be very careful about. But um, I, it's not that I'm so worried that I wouldn't try it in a horse. I think it is... Um, it is relatively safe based on the experience. And I also have, you know, we have done it in standing horses. Now I don't want to talk about the results here, but it, it, you know, it works. Okay. So what would your objectives be when using it in a live horse? Um, what kind of conditions would you be yes. looking to treat? Absolutely. So that's a really good point here. And I think we really try to make that also in our conclusion is this is not something you just do in a horse that, you know, has potentially some back pain or weird hind limb lameness or something like that. I, every other diagnostic 
modality has to be exhausted um, that we are more familiar with. Because the truth of the matter is, if I scope a horse right now, I don't have the experience of saying, you know, all right, I've done a hundred of those. This is normal. This is an anatomical variation, and this is abnormal and actually causing the problem. I think we need to rule out um, as many conditions as possible with the imaging modalities we are comfortable with before we would do this. But if I have a case that doesn't respond to the standard treatments or that doesn't um, uh, give me where I cannot come up with a good diagnosis that helps the animal, then I wouldn't hesitate to do this if I have the right instrumentation, um, which means a scope of a sufficient length and a small enough diameter for the animal I'm working with. So I wouldn't do it in the 300-kilogram pony um, with this endoscope, but anything over 450 kg I'll be very comfortable doing, and I think that the risk is... Um, calculable. I don't think it's very high. It's a pretty small risk for the animal. Okay, well I look forward to reading what you do next with this research. It's it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks for your time. No worries, you're welcome. Dr. Tilo Fow is the Senior Lecturer in Bioengineering at the Royal Veterinary College. He's joining us today to discuss his recent publication, currently in the Early View section on the EVJ website, titled Movement Asymmetry in Working Polo Horses. So hi Tilo, thank you for joining us to discuss your recent publication in EVJ. Can you start us off by telling us your reasons for investigating the movement asymmetry found in working polo horses? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Ren. And, uh, um Yes, uh, so the, the reason for investigating polo ponies is really because they are quite interesting from a... Uh, biological, biomechanical point of view, because they have to do high-speed work, but they also do uh, a lot of acceleration and deceleration and turning. And all of these, or most of these things, are done in asymmetrical gates rather than in symmetrical gates, like, for example, in dressage horses that do a lot a lot more trotting. And so the, the, the reason for, for, for using polo ponies then was really because we wanted to find out, does this mean that actually these polo ponies are more asymmetrical than other horses? Because they don't really have to use trot. They're using uh, asymmetrical gates predominantly. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of pressures they experience both in training and in competition? And what did you hypothesize about the movements um, of these athletes? So, Polo, as, uh, as, I, as I briefly mentioned, is, is there's a lot of acceleration and deceleration happening. So the horses need to get from one end to, of the pitch to the other end very quickly. They need to then uh, turn around uh, depending on where the, where the ball is going. And so there is a lot of... Um, non-steady state locomotion happening in these. So the musculoskeletal system has to do different things. It has to put power into the system and also get the energy out of the system uh, relatively quickly when they're, when they're decelerating. So these are demands that are very different from, from a lot of other horses. Even if you think about race horses, they, of course they're going fast, but um, they're going at a much more steady pace. So polo horses... Polar horses uh, experience a lot more acceleration and deceleration and turning. So this is why they're biomechanically uh, interesting to us. And also the, the rules of polo um, 
are interesting in a way that um, they uh, favor turns in a certain direction and also most of the training is done in a clockwise direction. So we were thinking that uh, likely this will lead to some sort of asymmetry in those horses' movement. So tell us a little bit more about the training in the clockwise direction. What, what does that tell you and what can you, what did you hypothesize from, from that? And that's an that's an interesting topic because uh, um, turning introduces, of course, some sort of asymmetry. But what sort of asymmetries is actually not quite very well documented yet. We have uh, we have evidence from uh, some uh, studies with uh, with force plate measurements and force shoe measurement that actually the outside limbs uh, experience slightly higher forces than the inside limbs, which is uh, which is a little bit uh, counterintuitive um, if you first think about it. So if you lean to one side, then you would experience, you would expect that your leg that is on the on in on the side of in which in, in which you are leaning, that that limb would actually experience higher forces. Mm. But that is slightly different dynamically because the horses have to lean into the circle to actually navigate that that circle. And so that's not necessarily true dynamically anymore. And this is what people have found. In the forelimbs, actually, the forces are higher. Indeed, the peak forces are higher in the outside limbs, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive also when you then think back to what happens in lameness, um, where we often see horses uh, going more lame with the lame limb on the inside of the circle. So, but there's other things that are happening when you're, when you're going around the circle and this is you're leaning into the circles and people have measured that actually the inside limb um, is at a slightly more acute angle. So this could also explain um, that uh, the horses go more lame with the lame limb on the inside of the circle because they don't like bending their limb out of the sagittal plane. And uh, so this is all very relevant for polar horses because they do a lot of uh, work on the, uh, in circles. They turn, turn a lot also in competition. So what were your inclusion criteria for the polar horses in this study? Um, uh, that was uh, <laughs> relatively simple. Um, we were just looking for polar horses in training. Um, uh, and that, that was it really. So we had contacts from uh, from uh, our investigators and also from some of our students here at the college who were involved in polo so we approached uh, polo trainers and polo training yards and said do you have any horses that are currently in training or in competition and uh, we then approached them and said yes can we can we do some gait analysis with these and this is what we went and did Fantastic. So how did you conduct the study? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the two different types of inertial sensors that you used? So, yeah, it's, it's our standard uh, lameness uh, system, really, that we, that we use a lot. And this involves uh, inertial sensors. Uh, and there's an inertial sensor on the head of the horse and an inertial sensor over the pelvic area of the horse. The one over the pelvic area also has a GPS in it, so um, you can also measure speed. But we didn't really make much use of that additional capability here. And what we were interested in here is simply to quantify asymmetry of head movement and asymmetry of pelvic movement, looking at how much vertical movement, how much up and down movement there is happening 
during the two stance phases. So if you're looking, for example, at the head, we're looking at how much does the head move up and down during the left volume stance phase and how much does the head move up and down during the right volume stance phase. And then we know um, that when the, whole, when the head moves up and down more, that during that stance phase where that happens, the horse is actually producing more force on the ground. And this principle also applies to the hindquarters. If the pelvic area moves more up and down during the left hind limb stance phase, then the left hind limb is producing more force than the right hind limb. So what movement symmetry variables did you end up assessing? Uh, we used to publish the symmetry values um, that... Uh, out of the reason that uh, for these we also have thresholds um, that have been previously proposed, um, saying if asymmetry is outside a certain value, then this horse is likely um, lame. And we use these values. We have we have two different types of values here. We have one set of values that is actually consisting of two values, um, where we are looking at how much the the landmarks are either the head or the pelvis moves down during the stance phases. And we can relate this to the force that is happening in the first half of stance um, to produce weight bearing. And then we also look at how much the pelvic area or the head um, moves up in the second half of the stance phase into the aerial phase. And this relates then to how much force is produced in the second half of the stance phase and uh, um, how much the horses are basically pushing off with their limbs. So that's the first set of variables. They're usually called min-diff and max-diff because we're looking at the differences between the minima and the differences between the maxima that we see in the vertical movement. And for these, we have uh, thresholds uh, that are determined from a slightly different inertial sensor system. So we had to slightly adapt these to our system because we have compared the two systems and we know that they move, that they measure slightly different amounts of asymmetry. So that's the first set of variables that we used. And then we also have um, a value which is called the symmetry index, which uh, looks not at the the position that is uh, that the head or the pelvic area is uh, taking at mid stance or in the mid aerial phase but it looks at the the absolute amount of upwards movement that is happening um, um, from the minimum so from for mid stance to after um, stance or in the mid aerial phase and this is slightly different this value um, because uh, it combines both weight bearing and propulsion into one value and also, it is a normalized value um, because it takes into account how much the how much vertical movement there is overall. So we have two sets of values, and for both of these, um, we have uh, thresholds that we can apply. And what did you discover? Did you um, did you find that a percentage of horses was either fore or hind limb lame, or both? Yeah, there were actually um, quite a few horses that were outside uh, the values that we currently propose as as uh, lameness thresholds. And uh, in terms of forelimb asymmetry, there were about 50% uh, of the horses, uh, independent of which values we, we used there. There were about 50% of the horses that were actually outside uh, our normal limits. For hind limb lameness, we had a little bit of a bigger discrepancy um, between the two sets of values. So we had between roughly 30 and 50% uh, of uh, horses, again, that would be outside our normal limits. And what, what that would mean, if, if we were to see a horse uh, clinically here um, for a lameness exam and a horse would present with such an, an asymmetry, 
um this would mean that we would uh, that we would uh, that this horse would likely um have well that sorry so if we were, were to see a horse uh, with such asymmetry values in a clinical lameness exam um this would be a clear sign of uh, of a lameness uh, in the affected limb in this particular horse a little bit more tricky if you if you just go out there and uh, measure horses that do not have any perceived um, performance issues, and this is uh, where a lot of a lot of discussion is also um, uh, happening in the scientific and uh, veterinary com community about how what do we actually do with these thresholds? Uh, is this actually a, a good way to 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 um, deal with lameness? And uh, Opinions uh, go go a little bit uh, in different directions here. I, I'm always of the of the opinion that if if the asymmetry is above a certain threshold, it doesn't have to be exactly that threshold. Then certainly this horse is not performing symmetrically. And even if it isn't lame at this point in time, it can't be good to always put more um, force through one of the limbs and less force through the other of the limbs. So likely um, this will in the long term uh, lead to problems. We definitely need to to conduct more studies to actually prove this and actually find out um, whether this is actually true that when horses uh, produce more force with one limb than with the other that that in the long term will uh, result in problems but um, that's that's definitely a, a direction we are, we are definitely going into did you find that the polo horses were predominantly either right or left lame um, in terms of directionality uh, mm -hmm. of uh, asymmetries, we didn't actually, to our to our surprise, we didn't actually find anything that would hint that uh, the horses would be more lame on one side or on the other, or more asymmetrical to, towards one side or the other, um, which is a is a little bit was a little bit surprising given that um, the the clockwise uh, training regime and also. Uh, the polo competition rules, but uh, this is uh, what we found. It it doesn't seem to be causing additional issues in in one one direction. And the horses in this study were trotted on a firm surface in a straight line. Do you think you'd um, find dramatically different results if you also examine them on a circle? Um, there, there's two things in here. I mean, one is the surface, and one is the direction. So, in terms of the Direction so straight line versus lunging. We know that um, from again uh, drawing from uh, from uh, previous studies and also from uh, from our clinical work, um, we know that often horses show very similar patterns um, on the lunge compared to the straight, saying um, basically meaning that if you see an asymmetry on the straight line. This asymmetry will be exacerbated on one of the reins, and it will be reduced on the on the other reins. So often, if we can see a very mild uh, asymmetry on the straight, um, putting the horse on the lunge is not necessarily giving us that much uh, more information. Um, it's a little bit in contrast to maybe the, the visual lameness exam, where you might be more uncertain about an asymmetry, a very mild asymmetry that you see on the straight line, and this is why you want to put that horse on the lunge line. Um, to actually exacerbate that and to actually be, be sure that um, this uh, horse shows this um, asymmetry that you that you were suspecting from the straight line. This is in many, many horses, this is the case. But there is, of course, also then horses um, where you then, for example, then introduce also a different surface and you lunge that horse on a, on a soft 
lunge and on a hard lunge, a hard lunge, hard surface, um, then you see slightly different patterns. And you can't necessarily predict um, from the straight line um, data whether this will happen in that horse or not. So lunging a horse is, is still um, a, valuable, uh, a valuable exercise, but it might be... Um, it might be less so if you actually use quantitative gait analysis, because in many cases, if you already see a uh, a mild asymmetry on the straight, this will also be the case when you when you launch that horse. And can this system detect symmetrically bilaterally lame horses? <laughs> um, symmetrically bilaterally lame horses. In this is this is a, a criticism that is that is often um, put forward when uh, when thinking about these uh, asymmetry measurement systems. In our experience, this actually happens very very rarely. Even if you, if you have a bilaterally lame horse, most of these horses have a have a predominant lameness and already on the straight show a um, a preferred limb or a non-preferred limb. And in addition, these sensors measure continuously. So you get an idea of what that horse does during every single stride it takes. And what you can often see in bilaterally lame horses is that although your your impression is that they are quite symmetrical, um, there's quite a lot of variability between strides. And there's very, very few strides that are actually perfectly symmetrical. And there is quite a few strides that are for example, left forelimb asymmetrical, and then there's quite a few strides that are right forelimb asymmetrical. So the horse is continuously switching um, between its two lame legs. And this is hard to perceive, but we can measure it. And so um, this is one of the advantages of, of, a, of an inertial sensor system, that it gives you a lot of data. It gives you data from a lot of strides, and you can, um, in many cases, um, already from the straight line, um, see that a horse is uncomfor- uncomfortable on on both of its both both its forelimbs or even both its its hind limbs. Did you detect a difference between the incidence of lameness experienced by low um, compared to high goal horses? Um, our our data set wasn't really um, designed to look into this for okay. starters, but we looked into it a little bit and. Um, we couldn't find any any difference in terms of low goal and high goal, but it's maybe not so not so surprising because using low goal and high goal as as an indicator of how intensive the training and competition load of a horse is actually doesn't work very well because many high goal horses uh, um, are often. The, the owners often have a bunch of horses and can, can then rapidly switch between horses during a competition, during a match, versus, uh, versus low-goal horses are, are often um, in not such a position and have to have to play for longer. And so while the high-goal horses have to play at higher intensity, they often play shorter and also, also um, the training is, uh, is a slightly different in these. So it's using low goal and high goal as 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 an indicator of how intensive the polo competition and training load is does not necessarily work well and this is probably the reason why we couldn't find any difference between low goal and high goal ponies okay and lastly you looked at age as a variable um did you find that it correlated to to lameness at all 
Nope, we didn't find any evidence of that. I think there's a few variables in there that we looked at, like the the min diff and max diff or symmetry index values of of either the head or the pelvis that show a little bit of a of a trend, but there was nothing statistically uh, significantly um, showing up as that uh, age would be indicative uh, or would be would be related in in the incidence in the incidence of lameness. Okay, and how would you like to develop this research in the future? Um, we're, I mean, we're doing quite, quite a lot of things and, uh, in, in the area of uh, objective gait analysis, quantitative gait analysis. And one of the things that I, that I think briefly mentioned uh, before is um, going a little bit more into detail in finding out what are, what are thresholds, what are the thresholds really that we can use and develop and what what we are lacking a little bit there and what we are currently doing a little bit of is to actually see how variable um, gate analysis over multiple days, over, over weeks, over months. So we, we follow horses over over months. Really, we have a cohort of racehorses, for example, that, that, we, that we look into that we have been now following for uh, over 12 months now. And we'll follow them for another six months and we'll, we'll see how, um, how variable... Um, the asymmetries are that we see in these these horses, and can we use uh, can we develop better thresholds, uh, more powerful thresholds to actually detecting um, when an asymmetry becomes a lameness, and possibly also um, find out whether we can use these uh, asymmetry values as predictors of of impending injuries. This is particularly, uh, um, I guess, uh, relevant for racehorses, um, but possibly also other other competition. But competition horses that have a very repetitive uh, training uh, training load, and where where maybe uh, a change in asymmetry values might indicate that um, there's a subclinical issue somewhere, and um, maybe adapting the training uh, regime would help these horses. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you very much, uh, um, Rhiannon. That uh, was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and I hope you join us again next time.